Hello, Brattleboro, and welcome to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro. I am your host, Olga Peters, and I have on the line with me from Montpelier, Representative Emily Kornheiser. Hey, Emily. Hey, Olga. Nice to talk to you again. It's so great to have you back on the show. Um, we pretty soon here, folks, you're in for a treat. Emily and I will be calling up a woman by the name of Tammy uh, Colby, excuse me, Tammy Colby, who is one of the investigators, you could call her, or a researcher, you could call her, behind a study that it's making its way through the legislature. Its shorthand name is called the Waiting Study, but I think its full name is the Study of People Waits in Vermont's Education Funding Formula. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, that's boring already. It's not. It's absolutely fascinating. Don't you think, Emily? I absolutely do. And it has really huge um, implications for how our property taxes work and how rural schools are funded and how poor schools are funded and um, really has the opportunity, I think if we take the findings of it seriously, to sort of close the loop on a push towards educational equity that started with Act 60, you know, was that a dozen years ago? Uh, more. 20, um, almost more than 20. 20 years ago, yeah. Um, that we really started that conversation there and um, we have not been able to sort of realize the dreams that we wanted around educational equity in Vermont. And so I think if we take this study seriously, we have a roadmap to really affect some profound change on how Vermonters um, learn mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and experience school. I think my takeaway right now with this study, and I'm looking forward to hearing Tammy comment on it more, is, you know, so often when we talk about education, we talk about it in terms of, oh, my gosh, my property taxes, or, oh, my gosh, spending keeps going up when it comes to education. And this study points out that, you know, we've been looking at taxes through Act 60 to make sure that in many ways taxing has been fair in the sense that um, students who live in wealthy towns, and this is oversimplifying things, or students that live in more poor towns still receive equitable educational opportunities. And we've kind of got that taxing part down pretty well. But what we haven't really been looking at as effectively is the cost side. And what does it actually cost to educate these students? Um, And that sounds like when Tammy first mentioned that to me, when I first saw that in the study, it was kind of, oh, no, duh. And yet at the same time, it's like, oh, it, it was never that clear before. I love that you just said no duh in the context of a policy conversation about educational equity because I feel like that's everything that the Montpelier Happy Hour is all about. About talking really casually about like super important issues. So I just want to give some huge thanks to you for your language use. Why thank and you. You're very welcome. <laughs> I'm really, yeah. I mean, 
I think it's funny that we thought that if we just sort of, you know, solve this taxation side around educational equity, that the cost side would just sort of solve itself. But it absolutely hasn't. Um, and what that means is that really, you know, like kids who cost more are not getting the same kind of resources. And mm-hmm. so, yeah. Um, and schools, where they have large populations of kids who get more, mm-hmm. um, who cost more. Yeah, we've um, unintentionally, we have cr- potentially created some inequities in mm-hmm. in attempts to correct other ones. Um, for mm-hmm. you right now, Emily, um, what has been your biggest takeaway or your biggest curiosity point? Um, so... It's such a good question, Olga. Um, <laughs> my biggest curiosity is, so what now? What does this mean? Like, is this something that we can actually fix? Um, mm-hmm. It seems, you know, so obvious that kids who struggle in school, um, for whatever reason, would cost more to educate and that small schools would cost more per child than large schools. Um, those are all things that we know instinctually, Um and it's really amazing that we can just sort of look at them um, more comprehensively now because of the study. What I'm curious about is, so how might this shift the landscape of Vermont schools? Um, how might this shift the landscape of property taxes in our communities? And how... And then to really talk politics, like, what are my colleagues going to do about this in the legislature? You know, we are very good at talking about equity as a meaningful thing. But when we're really asking some communities to accept the fact that their tax burden is about to rise, um, will they step up to it? Mm-hmm. It creates a really interesting um, dynamic in that often conversations in this building run along rural urban divides. Hmm. Um, rather than party. And in this case, it's really not a rural-urban issue. It's really a rural and poor issue and an urban and wealthy issue. And so I think that's going to create some new allegiances and some new alliances and um, maybe jumpstart some more conversations that are worth having. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I... We should note that if these recommendations go through, Emily touched on it a little bit, but just for the sake of listeners, that it could potentially change a number of communities' tax rates. And in many cases, it could, uh, towns, for lack of a better term, um, or communities that have been paying higher taxes may see a, a definite cut in their taxes and vice versa. Um which will be a real landscape shift for a lot of communities. Um, But it brings to mind for me another curiosity point of something that I'm just going to watch as this conversation unfolds. I think when I look back at the beginning of Act 60, I feel in some ways it was messaged really badly. Um, And maybe I just say that because I grew up in one of those quote unquote gold towns. 
Yeah. And the message was, oh, look, you guys all get to drive Cadillacs, so you have to stop driving Cadillacs and and um, pay more money. And it was it was mm-hmm. messaged as a punishment. Oh, rather than yeah, rather than, hey, we are all in this together, and don't we all want our kids to thrive? This is a responsibility mm-hmm. we all have. Um, okay. And I'm really interested about how this co- this new conversation could potentially move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what's interesting, you know, for me, I'm really sitting with this idea that, you know, for Brattleboro, this is a huge win. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, but when I, and so as the legislator representing Brattleboro, it's an easy win for me. When I look at, say, Representative Sebelia, who has been really, you know, very involved in school boards and has been fighting this, this issue specifically to really move this conversation forward for a long time. She has one community that's going to see its, you know, taxes go up significantly and another community that's going to have its taxes go down significantly. So how she's able to sort of balance those conversations will be really interesting. And I think similarly, now that we have these consolidated school districts, I don't know what that means. Mm. So, you know, what, how are Brattleboro tax rates versus Dummerston tax rates? How will that sort of equalize across the supervisory district? And you know, I so wish this conversation could have happened before Act 46, um, yeah. because I think there are a lot of the implications, I think, are very different after Act 46 than they would have been before. That is such a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Act 46 has uh, given perhaps another layer of complication to this conversation. Um, yeah, <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> Well, Emily and I are going to uh, have Tammy come on on the show. So if folks will just hang tight, we will introduce Tammy in just a moment. Welcome back to the Montpelier Happy Hour here on 107.7 FM LP Brattleboro. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and I have via Zoom with me today, Tammy Colby, one of the researchers behind the pupil waiting study, as well as Emily Kornheiser, representative for the Brattleboro District. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank Thank you. you. Now, Tammy, just so we can have some context, why was this study commissioned? And uh, and why were you the person commissioned to do it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so so uh, a couple things. First of all, um, again, thank you for inviting me to to be part of the conversation today. I, I, the study is not just me alone. The study was conducted by a team of researchers, uh, including myself at University of Vermont, Kieran Kalina at University of Vermont, but also Dr. Uh, Bruce Baker, who is at Rutgers University and a Rutland High School alum, believe it or not, and uh, Drs. Jesse Levin and Drew Atchison, American Institutes of Research. And, you know, as a team, we brought a pretty diverse um, uh, 
skill set and a body of expertise, not just from understanding Vermont, but nationally. And so we try to bring that to the study. But, you know, back to your original question, you know, what precipitated the study? You know, this was a request on the part of the legislature. Um, and it was requested two years ago. And, and I I can't speak to legislative intent specifically, um, but what I, my understanding is, is that, you know, there's been a longstanding interest on the part of legislators in making sure that the existing funding formula is both efficient and fair. And a key part of that are the weights that are incorporated in the funding formula. And, you know, there has not been a real systematic look at those weights and since basically Act 60 was passed. And it, it it, frankly, I think the legislators think it was time. Um, Emily, I'll let you chime in. That's my understanding for why the study was uh, requested. Absolutely. That is my understanding as well. This is my first biennium um, in my second year, so I was not there when the study was requested. But I think, you know, the journey from Act 60 to today has been a very long conversation about what educational equity means in Vermont and whether or not we're able to realize that dream and goal that I think people share really across the aisle. Yeah. And so I think this study was really saying like, okay, so how are we doing on this most difficult of things? Now, uh, Tammy, why were you one of the people selected? Um, so the Agency of Education uh, solicited bids um, through the competitive bid process. Um, I don't know how many other people bid. Um, I know that we were selected through a competitive bid. <laughs> and what were some of the major findings? Sure. Um, I think it might be helpful before I talk about findings. Is that okay, Olga, mm -hmm. to talk about sort of what the scope of the study was? Perfect. Um, yeah. Right. So... The legislature asked us to do some very asked for some very specific things in this study, and I think it's important to understand what those are because that really gives us the outline of what the study was about. Mm -hmm. um, and there are lots of things we can talk about with regard to education funding in the state as well as equity, but the legislature was really specific, and they asked us to do three things. First of all, to evaluate the existing weights, and I'll talk about what those weights are in just a minute. But first Great. of all, just to say, you know, are the existing weights working? Two, to consider whether or not we needed to think about other cost factors and other weights in our funding formula. And three, to look and take a look back at um, the census-based block grant for special education funding that's coming up. Uh, coming into play and is going to be implemented here in a couple years and considering how or whether there might be adjustments to that grant according to student need. Um, so that was the scope of the study. But mm -hmm. let me back up even further. You know, what are these weights and why are yes. people even talking about them? And I think we actually have to go back to Act 60, which is really based on the Brigham decision, right, which is the Supreme Court case. Yeah, you know, there's lots of things in that decision, but I think we can talk about in high level terms. That was the court case that really set the parameters for the existing ed funding system. And what that court case dictated basically was is that there should be substantially equal levels of tax effort for equal levels of school spending across the state. And so that's 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 the big picture. But in thinking through implementing that, 
requirement. We certainly have what lots of taxpayers know of now is the Ed Fund, right? Where so all local education related income and property taxes go back into a statewide fund and come back out. But there's a second piece to that. And that is sort of how do we think about education spending across districts, right? And the weights in the formula are the equity component of the formula. And what they're intended to do, or should, right, if they're working well, is equalize spending. And what do I mean by equalized spending? By equalizing spending, what it says is that we need to take into account that some districts are going to have higher costs to educate students to similar standards. Right, and so when we're thinking about this, this mandate for equal levels of tax effort for equal levels of spending, it's not just how much is being spent raw dollars, it's a, how adjusted spending that takes into account, right, that equalizes costs, right, across districts in a way. Can I try to rephrase that? Yeah. Sort of in a way that might make sense to me and make sense to listeners, because one thing that I am struck by regularly in our town meeting is the fact that our school finance person often says like it's too complicated to explain to all of you in the middle of this meeting yeah. and um but when i think about the school waiting the way you just described it i think of this sort of like diagram meme that's like always floating around the lefty facebook sphere of this um these sort like a bunch of kids watching a ball game and they're yep. all, all sort of like different shapes and sizes and there's a fence and some of them can't see over the fence. And then there's sort of the next one that's equity. And then like all the kids are standing on different size boxes. That's right. And that basically like kids need different amounts of effort on behalf of the school system in order to reach the same level. That's correct. And we also know that that we need to adjust for differences in costs that aren't always just related to kids, mm -hmm. right? That we know that the cost of operating a small school right, is higher than operating a larger school due, due mm -hmm. to economies of scale. And we also know from national research that operating schools in more sparsely populated areas typically have higher costs too. And so the way the formula work is, as Emily said, is trying to adjust spending across school districts to take into account the fact that some districts are gonna have more, great, larger numbers of students that require more resources as well as the fact that some districts are just by nature of their location or their right where they are, are also going to have higher costs. And this idea of making sure that we've equalized tax effort for spending only works if we're adjusting for these cost differences across districts appropriately. And the way we do that is with weights in the formula. And we say that currently that students from economically disadvantaged backgrounds we rec the right we rec the formula recognizes that for though that that to ensure that those students achieve common outcomes we probably will need to invest additional resources english language learners and also secondary level students there's an acknowledgement that says that secondary education costs more and then mm. we need to is take that, that we take that into account Sorry, is that middle school or high school when you say? Well, so under the current law, secondary is defined as grades 7 through 12. So it includes middle and high school. And one of our findings, and I'll talk about that in a minute, is actually that that needs to be broken out. That, that the costs are, that there are additional costs for grades 7 through 12, but the costs are different for grades 12 and 7 and 8 than they are for 9 and 12. So in short, we were asked to go back and say, are the existing weights appropriate? 
And also to say, are we waiting on the right things? So right now we mm. wait on just those three things. And so that was our charge. Is and and if you think about it, if these weights are not will you, I'm sorry, will you say those will you say those three things one more time just so we can really make sure that sure um, I can listeners can focus on them? Yep. Currently cur the current formula yes. only adjusts for right the poverty rate in a district. Mm -hmm. um, the percentage of students with um, English, English language learners mm -hmm. and uh, the, the share of students who are in, in grade seven to 12. Thank right? you. So it's just those three. And so the call is a broader call that says, let's go back and just check and say, are we adjusting on the right things? Mm -hmm. Acknowledging that those three things will probably be things that we continue to adjust on. And in considering that question saying, if those three things are the things we continue to do to adjust on, are we are the weights we're using correct? And so our study went back and looked at that. Um, and what we found, Olga, to your point, is that the weights we have are insufficient, that they are um, much smaller than what they should be. Um, and I can talk about how we figured out what they should be. But that was the big finding. And then the second big finding is, I would say, is that we also, through our empirical analysis, found that we're not waiting on the right things, that in addition to economically disadvantaged, economic disadvantaged English language or ELL students in secondary level, that we were able to discern that there are differences in costs for small schools and for schools in sparsely populated areas, and that there really is a need in the formula for it to be a fair funding formula that we include include weights for those two factors as well. Thanks. I'm wondering. It's a mouthful. It is <laughs> and a I, mouthful. And, I, and I, I have a lot of respect for the business officers on town meeting day, right? We Vermont has a very complicated formula. That's right. Um, but I think this idea that we want to make sure that when we think about spending across districts that we're taking into account and sort of factoring out the differences in costs before we start to calculate tax rates. Mm -hmm. That's actually a pretty simple concept to think about, right? Like yeah. that makes the system fair. But we that fairness principle only actually works if the weights are correct, right? Mm -hmm. And if the weights aren't correct, then this part of the formula isn't doing its job. And so I think the big takeaway in our study is that part of the formula isn't doing its job right now. So, and so, go ahead, Olga. <laughs> thanks, Emily. So yeah. what has been the impact after 20 years of, of um, not looking at these weights? What's been the impact to students and communities? Well, so that wasn't a question we specifically addressed in our study. Um, you know, I think you could, I mean, Emily might be able to talk about her community. Um, that's not something that we collected data on, right? And so our, really the focus of our study was to, was to say, are we waiting on the right things? And to figure out what the things we should be waiting on and then to say, what, what should the weights be for those things? And that's really what we focused on. So Emily, if you, maybe you can speak to Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, you know, since I did not do a study myself, I don't know if I can speak exactly to the impact of 
what might have happened, you know, that if something different had happened 20 years ago, what would life be like now? That seems very difficult. Um, but what I do know and what I've seen when I look at what some school districts are able to offer and what other school districts are able to offer, we know that opportunities are not equitable across the board. Um, I know that I've seen in Brattleboro that what's offered in terms of after school activities, um, what's offered in terms of sort of like enrichment activities at the elementary school level, um, counseling services, all of those things is just not as vibrant as we might see in some communities further north that have, um, do not have as many poor kids and English language learners as we do. Um, and so when I, and then the second thing that I'm really struck with is the conversation, you know, we live in a community with a very contentious Act 46 process. Um, that was sort of Brattleboro. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, and so, you know, Brattleboro with our, you know, by Vermont standards, urban school system um, was in conversation with a number of very small districts um, with very small schools that were whiter and wealthier for the most part. Um, and I think about how different those conversations might have been around merging those districts if the way, if we had had more accurate weights to have those conversations with. Because mm -hmm. I think people might have, I mean, I think there was so much cultural issues around the fear around Act 46 and the resistance around Act 46 um, that have nothing to do with money. Um, but I do think that if we were talking about taxes in a different way, or if we were talking about school spending in a different way going into those Act 46 conversations, um, there might have been a little more trust and opportunity available. Mm -hmm. And I think you hit on an important point there at the end with regard to taxes, and I'm not sure that everyone always get, understands this, is that nothing with the weights generate additional revenue for any district from the state. That's mm -hmm. not how our formula works. Many other states do, and so it's not entirely incorrect for people to think, oh, weights are going to bring more money, because that actually in other formula in other state work that way. Vermont doesn't. And so what our formula does is if you were to think about, for example, if, if there were changes in weights and all of a sudden a district had a greater number of equalized people, which is what the weights, right? They just, mm -hmm. they weight up the number of students. That's mm -hmm. essentially your denominator when figuring out, right? When you divide that by your per pupil spending and that's really what drives your tax rate. So if your denominator goes up, your tax rate goes down. Why, why is that? And I think this is a really important thing for us to think about as a state, is that that decrease in a tax rate is not intended to be a tax cut. What it's supposed to do is create additional spending capacity yes. for a local school district, which means if they continue to tax at the same rate, right? So you, in theory, your tax rate goes down if you, for the amount of spending you have right now. But if you mm -hmm. up spending then your tax rate stays the same, but it doesn't just, it creates additional spending power. And so it means that schools can have more resources available to them That's right. for the amount of money that they were spending under the previous week. That's correct. That's correct. And for places where you, where the, when the weights are, when, when weights are changed, um, if there was a change in weights, where their number of equalized people goes down, 
in their tax rate, quote unquote, goes up. What it means is that they either, right, as, as a share of the total pie in the state, if they want to continue spending at the, at the rate they are, they will have to pay more for it. And that's right, because remember, this is a little bit of a zero sum game because all the money goes in and what the tax rates are doing and right, we're figuring out how the money comes back out. And right, the budgets are still determined by local taxpayers, mm-hmm. right, and local mm-hmm. school boards. And so what we're doing is trying to figure out like fair share and how we distribute. And so spending decisions, for example, in Chittenden County actually impact spending decisions in Brattleboro, right? Because mm-hmm. it's all going right. in. And so yeah. Yeah. these tax rates, right, and this tax capacity, creating more capacity or constraining right ta- taxes going up are intended to sort of level set spending across districts mm-hmm. um and i do think that 20 years hence after after act 60 one of the things we can see you asked about impact i can't speak to impact but what we can see is that there are there are some pretty big spending differences across the state mm-hmm. um, and those spending differences do correlate with the wealth of the community and so this is, that's another indicator that perhaps these weights, right, this portion of the formula hasn't been working as effectively as it should. We mm-hmm. certainly know that the weights are off, but the product of the weights being off, it makes, it makes spending cheaper in places that maybe spending shouldn't be as cheap, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. And it makes it more expensive in places where we actually wish spending was less expensive. And Brattleboro is one of those communities. And you can you can speak to that, but I think that's a yes. really important thing to realize that, that this is right that this is a shared pot. And what we're mm-hmm. trying to do is what the way that not we the way the formula is set up is it's trying to balance all of these things. But mm-hmm. the minute those weights, right, don't reflect the true difference in costs across school districts, the entire system's out of whack. Right, we're not equal. Right, this sort of give and take doesn't work the way the formula was intended to work. And what the study shows is that the weights are out of whack, um, mm-hmm. that, they, that they're dated, right? That we're not real sure how they were developed in the first place. And certainly after 20 years and, and changes in educational policy and practice over time, the fact that they haven't been updated since Act 60, it's not entirely surprising that they're out of step with current costs. And that because they haven't been updated sort of incrementally over time, that the mm-hmm. changes might feel really big right now, right? Mm-hmm. If you think about mm-hmm. it, right, like if these things have been adjusted incrementally, they, it wouldn't feel like such a big change. But when 20 years go by and we haven't, right, there have been no meaningful changes to the weights, then big changes shouldn't be all that surprising. Right. right? You know, Absolutely. Right. And I think that's the other thing for listeners to sort of think about, right? When they look at the weights and they say, those are some big changes. Well, mm-hmm. there have been a lot of big changes in education. In um, 20 years. In yeah. 20 years. And it's yeah. not clear that the weights were were good representations of differences in costs to start with. Likely, mm-hmm. likely they were likely, especially uh, for economically disadvantaged students and ELL students, likely they were probably too small to start with in 1997. Okay, interesting. I think that's an important piece of context to keep in mind as well. Well, thank you, Tammy. On that note, it's time for us to quickly hear from some of our underwriters. 
So stay tuned, everyone. The Montpelier Happy Hour shall return in a moment. Welcome back to the Montpelier Happy Hour. I am your host, Olga Peters, and I have on the phone with me Emily Kornheiser, representative from Brattleboro, as well as Tammy Colby, who's one of the researchers in a, into a recent deep dive, very deep dive, into how the education formula weights students and students' needs differently. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you. Emily, I know you had a question. Let's dive in with the question you had for Tammy. Um, my question was just to sort of go back to this waiting again and the idea that like some people are six people and some people are half a person. Um, and just sort of want to name that that like mathematically, that's essentially what it looks like. Um, and ask What does that mean when we're thinking about educating all, that all children in Vermont are our children? That's something that someone, you know, said to me once and it really stuck with me. Yeah. Um, it was in the context of Act 46, but I think it just has huge implications for educational equity. Well, I, I, think, I think the thing to remember about our formula is that we don't fund one, our formula doesn't fund one district, right? Our formula funds all districts. And right, and so there, in doing so, it, it is built on the idea that there's a statewide responsibility for every single child, mm -hmm. right? That that's that's actually something unique about our formula, right? That 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 with with the way the system is set up, and and frankly, with the way the Brigham decision sort of thought about this, is mm -hmm. that it means every child is every child is a child of the state, not one school district, and so. You know, that, I think that's really at the heart of this. And so what the weights do without getting into all the crazy math is, you know, it's looking across all those school districts and saying, based on need, how do we allocate the pot across all students in the state to ensure that all students have sufficient resources? And instead of just looking at one district and saying, well, let's, you know, this district needs this many more dollars. What it says is that our formula says is let's look across all students and say, how do we divide our statewide education resources in a way that the, student, that the students who need more resources get them, right? And that in doing so, the goal is that all students achieve outcomes, you know, the outcomes we want to have them achieve. Mm -hmm. Thanks. So what do you think, Tammy, is really key for the folks who are sitting at home right now getting ready for annual town meeting? What do you think is really key from this study for them to understand as they go forward and talk to the school boards about sure. their budgets? Sure. Well, I mean, First of all, the legislature is, is deliberating the findings from this study, and so nothing from this study has implications for this year. Um, but what I would say is I think it's important for all voters, when they're thinking about their school budget, to, to recognize that, our, that the entire funding system in Vermont is, is the kickoff for that, is what 
whatever the local budget is that's passed. And what that means is that the assumption is, is that local school boards and, loca and local taxpayers are funding their schools at a level that ensure that students achieve outcomes that are commonly held, right? That's, you know, the graduation rates and, you know, I, you know, we don't like to talk about standardized tests, but they're an indicator, right? All these things, right? And so mm -hmm. as a taxpayer or someone who's going to your town meeting day and looking at your school budget, I think the question you really have to ask yourself is, does this budget do that for our kids, mm -hmm. right? In the most efficient and effective way mm -hmm. Um, are we passing budgets? Are we in dollars in ways that help our children achieve those outcomes? Because that's all the school budgets get added up together, right? Yeah. And how the funding works. And so it, if, if we aren't making choices at the local level, if school boards aren't making good choices, if taxpayers aren't making good choices about not just the level at which the district is funded, but also how the dollars are being spent, Mm -hmm. this is all kind of irrelevant, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the weighting study is just about how do we allocate revenues? How do we generate revenue and how do we allocate revenues in a way that pay for those budgets? But the towns all... need to be thinking really carefully. And this is really an opportunity for towns to sort of reset on how they think carefully about like, what do they actually want for the kids in that mm -hmm. district in terms of how they're going to learn what they learn? That's correct. That's correct. And to really be thinking hard about changing demographics and, you know, that Vermont is unique in that, you know, every year towns get together and we have, we have, in theory, good conversations around this. And so what I would say is, you know, waiting study isn't doesn't impact any of that decision making in the short run right and so mm -hmm. as you're coming into town meeting day that's really the question to be asking yourself your school board your educators and saying what is it that we really need? how do we do this in the best possible way for our kids and passing good budgets that then we then as a state we fund mm -hmm. and Ultimately, right, if the recommendations of the report are adopted in some shape or form on the part of the legislature, then, the mm -hmm. weights, then those weights will have a great deal to do with local capacity to pay for those budgets. So, but that's not going to happen this year. No, but, but let's talk. I don't know, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put Emily on the hot seat in a second. There was one concern that's been raised by this study is that for the towns that might experience a drop in their taxes, mm -hmm. that they may use that opportunity to keep taxes low when really we they might actually want to increase spending? Can you right, talk so, about that? Yeah. yeah, so the signal in the system, right? If you think about it, the whole purpose of re quote unquote, reducing taxes is that the only reason that you would see a reduction in taxes after, for example, the weight, if the weights were changed and you saw a reduction in taxes is the same. Which is what would happen in Brattleboro from yeah. what so, I understand from your yep. study. Most towns in um, Wyndham County would see a drop. Yeah. It, mm -hmm. If the weights that are identified in the report are adopted. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, the sig the intent there is for the the district to have the capacity to spend more in order um, to get the students up to the same 
level and opportunity outcome as other places in the state. Right. And provide equivalent opportunities to learn. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that's right. It's not just about outcomes. It's also about process. And that is, Mm -hmm. you know, the ideas that force really to have equal outcomes, we actually need to have equal inputs and not, we need unequal inputs and we need processes in those schools. We need programs and services and practices, mm-hmm. right? That may cost more in order to see common outcomes. Right? Mm-hmm. And so those kinds of things translate into the opportunities that students have to learn. Mm-hmm. And so, but no, under the current law, that would be a to be that is that is the town's prerogative to reduce taxes and not spend more. Um, and you know that's just the way the law is currently set up. That certainly I don't think would be the intent of a change in the weights, though, right? And right. So that's one of those things that I think localities will have to wrestle with if there is a change, unless mm-hmm. the law has changed somehow, right? The localities will have to wrestle with around how you balance, you know, the need, what is the signal being for needing more spending and thinking carefully Mm -hmm. about if you are going to spend more, how do you invest those dollars? Because that's another piece of this, right? You know, Mm -hmm. if you have additional spending capacity, what do you spend it on? Um, And then recognizing and sort of having the wherewithal to say, we're not necessarily going to take a tax cut in the short run to do that. Thanks. And I liked what you were saying, Tammy, about and and Emily about getting students up to the the level they need. I mean, we talk about inputs and outputs and out and outcomes and that type of thing, but really, this is about getting students the resources that they need. Whether that is a new program, whether that is hiring another staff member, um, but it's it's about resources. Uh, to meet mm-hmm. needs. And I think it's always important to remember that, you know, this is all feels very sort of economic-y, right? You know, but the reality <laughs> is, is that dollars buy things, right? And it's the things that the dollars buy that are the investments in kids. It's not the dollars, right? And so mm-hmm. while spending may need to increase, there's a second step here. And this is really where we need talented school board and school administrators and instructional leaders to be thinking about how do you invest those dollars wisely mm-hmm. and make sure that you are getting those kinds of outcomes, right? Like where do where should you be investing those dollars to get and does your study get into that at all? It was not the, not not the that was not our study, right? Our study. Okay. But you know, there there are lots of resources out there around that. Um, there are lots of studies mm-hmm. that talk about best practices for example educating english language learners you know like mm-hmm. there there is work and so i think we also have to recognize that if in fact it happened right if the weights were adjusted and all of a sudden mm-hmm. we created all this spending capacity and everyone everyone up their spending right to the levels we think it needs to be that there's still another step right and mm-hmm. that step is making good choices and about how to how to invest those dollars and in, in both a fair and efficient way mm-hmm. um and thank you tammy i think that's really important to recognize that that mm-hmm. the funding formula doesn't sort of wave a magic wand and all of a sudden we get equal outcomes right what it's what the funding formula it's is trying the first to do step is trying to equalize dollars in a way to provide local school districts the capacity to buy those buy the resources they need 
but that doesn't absolve local localities and local school boards and instructional leaders from having to think really hard about what it is they need to be investing those resources in. Thank you. I think we are just getting to time. And so I'm curious from you, when you're not being a kick-ass educational researcher and you're instead maybe being the mom who makes Valentine's Day cookies like you're doing when you get off the phone with us, I'm curious if you have a cocktail that you like to drink while you're doing that because this is the Montpelier happy hour. <laughs> I do not have much time to drink cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, I need to, um, especially after doing doing all this work. Um, but that's that's a, that's a good question. I wish I'd been better prepared on that one. Um, I you know studied my school finance and ahead. I didn't come prepared to, to think about cocktails. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally but I okay. can get back to you on that, and maybe we'll have to do another one of these and, and just know, talk about cocktails. And just, yeah, and I'll, I'll be more prepared on that. Okay. Thanks. Um, before, uh, Emily, we hear from you about your cocktail, um, I'm curious, what's the next step for this study? I mean, now it's in the hands of, of lawmakers. So I guess, Emily. Yes. What are you pondering and what's the conversation that's happening? Um, to be perfectly frank, the conversation is we know we need to do something about this. And is there the appetite this year to do something about this? Because this is a substantial lift um, and a substantially complicated conversation to have within the legislature. Or is that something that we need to start in a new biennium next year? And if it turns out that we need to really be making those decisions in a new biennium next year, then what are the repercussions for that on districts and on individuals who are really feeling the full weight of this waiting study. And so that's sort of where things are, is really sort of flexing some decision-making muscles around pros and cons of when the conversation starts and when it doesn't. And that's really like straight politics and not as much about kids as we might like this to be. And the legislature has a constitutional obligation here, right? Mm -hmm. to, to, do, yes. to do something at some point. Um, yes. Uh, and so I it, and I don't think there's any doubt that yeah, something I think will I, happen and something will happen. Yeah. Soon. Yeah. I just wanted to point that out because I think that's also important for your constituents to understand. Right. That that there, you know, there there is a constitutional responsibility to do nothing mm -hmm. um, really puts people at risk with regard regard to meeting those obligations um, because absolutely equalizing educational opportunity is a core principle in Brigham and mm -hmm. you know what the report does I think is pretty clear about is that the existing formula is not living up to that um, absolutely and I, I appreciate the clarity of the report because I think something that wasn't that clear on that mandate um, would be really easy to push aside and say, this is too big and we can't handle it. And so I appreciate the clarity that you're bringing to this and the clarity that a few other people yeah. in the building are bringing to this. And that I feel like I can bring to this now that we had this conversation about how urgent this issue is. Mm -hmm. So it sounds to me, Emily, um, do you have a cocktail for today? I don't, Olga, I am really on week like two, like almost at the end of week two of recovery from the flu. Um, and it's been a long, slow road with, you know, some failed veto overrides sprinkled into the <laughs> middle of them. 
So I peeled myself out of my sick bed to come up here um, both weeks for important votes. And so um, I've been drinking really more ginger tea than I knew was possible. <laughs> well, and I... not even a hot toddy. Oh, yeah. Well, Plus given... Gosling's rum in there makes it sort of like a dark and stormy. Tea. Mm-hmm. That's a good idea. That's Thank a good you. idea. <laughs> See, look, you have your, you have a cocktail. <laughs> recovering competitive sailor. That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> oh. We need to spend more time hearing about your whole life next time we talk. About it, Definitely. I, I don't know that your listeners are that interested, but. Oh, they are. They are. <laughs> well, I think in the meantime, given the, the meatiness of these education decisions and conversations we have to have, um, and the fact that Emily is recovering from the, the flu, it sounds like we just have some really strong, dark coffee in our future. Just like straight up, yeah. let the spoon stand up in the coffee because it's that thick uh, and, and buckle down. Well, you know, some of the most important conversations in education are sometimes the hardest because, mm -hmm. you know, I think what this study really highlights and sort of makes us all step back and really have to think hard about is what does it mean that all kids are all of our kids? Mm -hmm. And what does equity and equal opportunity really mean in this state? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think those those two issues, we can talk about weights all day long. Yeah. Really, if you want to sort of scratch the surface, those are two really hard policy questions that we have to talk about and debate and discuss in the state. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of coffee or you, whatever else your drink is, you know, <laughs> that that's just going to be hard to talk about because, mm -hmm. you know, we're all taxpayers. Many of us mm -hmm. are parents, right? Many of us believe you know, strongly in principles of equity. And at times those three things can be in tension with one another. And I think that's one of the contours of this kind of discussion that, you know, just recognizing that going in is that pe many people are trying to balance all three of those perspectives at once um, is really important. That it isn't yeah. people right or wrong or bad or good or winners or losers. It's just, this is a hard conversation to have because, you know, you have this, we're all, we're all sitting in this position where we are wearing multiple hats at the same time and wanting mm -hmm. to do what's right on all three things when all three things sometimes might feel hard to do. Yeah. Thank I think that's you. really important. Thank you. And I think as we're balancing all three of those things, I think as a legislator, it's really important for me to keep at the front of my mind the future of the state and the future of the state sits with the children and what it that's means right. to educate them. And that's so right. that's what I'm going to always hold front and center is how important it is to invest in the kids. Great. Well, yeah. on that note, Tammy Colby from the University of Vermont, thank you for joining us today. Of hey, course. Emily, if folks need to get in touch with you, how do they do that? They can go to emilycornheiser.org, ecornheiser at gmail.com, ecornheiser at ledge.state.bt.us. They can come find me at my office hours on Saturdays in the Co-op Cafe at 11 a.m. Now that I am recovered from the flu, I will be back there. And there's also always Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
Wonderful. I will be putting a link to a summary of this study on our SoundCloud page. So if you want to tune in to today's conversation or if you missed it, you can find us at the Vermontitude Facebook page or the Vermontitude SoundCloud page. Hey, everyone. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too.